Nation Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the Combination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Groceries through Instacart, delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. Welcome to the Nerd Party. podcast. I'm Jessica Nunn. And I'm her husband and co-host, Philip Gilfus. <laughs> As promised last week, we are returning to the world of animated Second Doctor era. Yes. Um, as folks know, we have many lost episodes in the First and Second Doctor era, and luckily they are animating them to make them complete stories based on the surviving audio. And the pictures, I assume. Exactly. The telesnaps, as they say in the business. <laughs> and so we're going to be looking at the second Doctor story, Fury from the Deep. Um, this is the penultimate serial from Season 5. And this first aired on 16 March 1968. And here on Time and Space, we've gotten into the practice of when there's an animated second Doctor serial... Where the companion leaves, <laughs> we call on Richard Carrier. Richard, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, it is becoming a theme, isn't it? Slightly better farewell story for a companion, yeah. this one. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and uh, a second, second Doctor animated serial, Where the Companion Leaves, and there's a one-in poster of the Master. That's, uh, <laughs> yes. that's your niche. Yeah, although <laughs> on that note, while we mention it, I uh, I like that little treasure egg in Faceless Ones, but this one I thought it wasn't. It didn't make sense to me because why yes. would they have a, po- a wanted poster inside a, an oil a gas refinery? Um, I don't know. May- maybe they were worried that that master might show up and have a nefarious scheme to take over the gas facility. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, if the doctor shows up randomly, yeah. the well, master yes. could as well. <laughs> Far so, behind, yeah. even if he hasn't. well let's get into it Uh, i figure we'll talk about the actual story first and then we can get into the more um meta uh animated etc elements to it um because we did just get watching uh, one thing about these blu-rays or however you're purchasing these is we're always interested in the extras and we did get a nice featurette that we saw with uh fraser hines and some other folks involved revisiting so that was nice to see um, but yeah, so getting to the actual story, I, I remember Richard when I saw an article um, months ago, though I'm sure it was longer than that when this, this project actually started, but like, oh, coming next, Fury from the Deep. And the article was like, you know, it's not the greatest story. I'm like, like you're not really pitching this very well. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of like, you know, okay. But anyway, you know, watching it, um, I don't know, Jessica, what did you think of Fury from the Deep? Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree. It wasn't a story that completely grabbed me. But then watching the featurette, as you said, um, I found it really interesting 
the idea that it was, you know, at these actual uh, anti-aircraft places and, and they're wandering around in the ocean and there's a helicopter and a crazy helicopter driver. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I imagine that that live, particularly during that time, it may have been more riveting than we found it now. Mm-hmm. Well, I think in a way it's sort of a it's a classic story in the sense that it has like like certain classics have all the sort of uh, ingredients that go into making that kind of era in a way. It's it is a classic base under siege. Unfortunately, it's preceded by one and followed by another one. So, you know, week to week over well over those several weeks um it would have got a bit samey, but I think everyone at the time watching would have recognised the the format for what it was. This mm-hmm. is definitely much Troughton's era settling into uh, a kind of a, a groove or a rut, if you want to see it that <laughs> way. Um, I, I think there's some interesting ideas in it, I, I think, uh, which might be somewhat lost on us today, um, especially abroad, uh, because around this time... I know that, I, and I have it. It's not really close to my heart as such, but my, my uh, having come, I grew up in a small uh, ex-Victorian seaside town uh, where, during the sixties and seventies, all the industry, local industry, economy just collapsed because, like shown in the faceless ones, everyone used to get, uh, you know, package trips, cheap package holidays to Spain and elsewhere. So no one wanted to go to rickety uh, roller coasters on the coast anymore and, and have a donkey ride in the rain. Um, <laughs> so a lot of people lost their, their livelihoods. Mm. Um, but uh, And this was the era when my parents were growing up. So my dad, after he left the RAF, got a job, the, the new industry, which was really revitalized, at least the, the fortunes of individuals who lived in these towns, which is working for offshore oil and gas companies and that's what my dad went to do so he was frequently away in the north sea on oil rigs on gas rigs um, and places like that uh, checking the the pipes and things so this is sort of close to home in a sense for me um, and it was all new when when this story came because I think for about a hundred years up to to then uh, gas um, in England uh, well in the UK was produced by burning coal uh, so it, it was quite dirty and very dangerous and also really toxic. So in this story, a few times they mention how the gas, the natural gas is, isn't toxic. Uh, it's so much safer. And there was because of that, the government had this big push to convert every house to to run off natural gas that was being that had been discovered in the North Sea. And uh, what that meant was that uh, strange little men in overalls used to show up at your house and convert your house and everyone was very kind of well some people were quite suspicious <laughs> of what their motives were were they actually burglars pretending and i think that's the origin in a way of uh in the story in that kind of doctor who tradition of the familiar making something familiar unfamiliar and a bit scary where you've got the characters of oak and quill who come into her house and they're they've got the overalls mm-hmm. on and they turn out to emit this poison well this sort of mind controlling gas to incapacitate her and, and things like that. So I like the little uh, topical uh, elements, a bit like in the faceless ones with the package holidays that that give. The, I think at the time it would have been it would have taken a like Doctor Who tends to do even even today. You know, like with um, say the one off the top of my head, like the Bells of St John takes the sort of the Wi-Fi and nice. everyone gets sucked in, lost in the Wi-Fi and things like that. You know, it takes a a, a running thing and sort of 
twists it to make it something sort of interesting and spooky while still fitting into that kind of uh, template of uh, of Doctor Who. The, uh, I'll probably get the title wrong. Is it the Idiot's Lantern? Was it the Charles Dickens one with the, the now they're using the gas uh, uh, lamps? Yeah, that was the that was the uh, yeah the oh, Unquiet sorry, sorry. Dead with the, the, that they live in yes. the gas. Yeah, the the uh, the Charles mm-hmm. Dickens. Yeah, and the Idiot's Lantern in a way oh, is sort of similar yeah. to that, but being Mark Gatiss it's about 50 years out of date because that's like the the fear of the television and the idiot box which was something very at the time you know when the the grandma and it's it's funny that you mention that actually because if i remember rightly i can't remember her name but the the grandma who loses her face in the idiot's lantern watching the television who's worried about them you know, it will rot your brains and all that, like people used to say. She's actually the woman, it's the same actress who plays the, like, the director of the company in Fury from the Deep, who shows up about halfway through um, to sort of take charge. It's the same lady, so there's a little coincidence for you. (laughs) It was was just to stick on that for a second. And I don't know, just because I think about these things, because, you know, this was, um, I know, just at the year five seconds. Yeah, 68. I was just like, would it be Mm. unusual to show a woman in charge? Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, she, it's not entirely clear in the show whether she's like they call her the director. I don't think she's supposed to be the director of the whole company, but she's certainly supposed to be the director of the she's project. Like the, but the... Um, and I think that's kind of uh, indicates the fact that this it's never explicitly said in the original story. And we'll talk about the animation separately. But the the idea is this is supposed to be set a little bit into the future. Right. And the the general fan received wisdom is that this is set in nineteen mid nineteen seventies, but that's very much an afterthought, and it's got to do with the fact that that would then fit in quite neatly with the John Pertwee era and the unit stories, which this is very uh, much a kind of a precursor mm-hmm. of, and also might explain why there's the Roger Delgado poster. But I think in the animation there is a calendar early on in episode one that has nineteen seventy five written on it. But there's some debate. It's not explicitly said when it's set. Uh, the 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 boss, the the head guy, I've completely forgotten his name now. Ron, mm-hmm. Ronson, Robson. He he says that he's had 30 years experience in the business. Oh, right. Which, if he'd only worked on British uh, oil and gas rigs, would mean that it would actually be set in the 1990s. Which I think is a bit of a stretch for the technology <laughs> for us now. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he could have worked abroad or worked on some of the other oil and gas refineries. But the general received wisdom is it's in the mid-70s, but it was certainly meant to be in the near future. Um, So that's why I think that, yeah, they have, like, you know, a a lady being uh, in a position of power in a a little bit like, I suppose, like a Star Trek sense of, you know, trying to indicate that it's futuristic by having social roles mixed <laughs> it was up always a little the, bit uh, you know the american trope which i guess you know no longer would exist but you know in the apocalypse movies of the 90s you could tell it was the future because it was a black president you know when it was morgan freeman or something and yes yeah no longer yeah you know. yeah although um, there are totally times when the men are like Shh, we're talking yeah. in this episode to yeah. the director yeah yeah, yeah. Well, talking about the the, the, the <laughs> monsters for a moment. Um, well, I mean, what'd you think of foam and weed? The, the, when they kept saying, <laughs> I, mean, we're I the... thought it was a great seventies band. <laughs> yeah, but when they kept saying we're under the control of the weed, I'm like, that, that's something different. Um, but anyway, <laughs> but uh, I, it did make me wonder because, of course, I mean, we just watched the animated. Um, uh, it did seem like 
just we saw a few pictures but like i don't know how well this worked i mean i don't know i suppose back then the television was smaller black and white a lot of imagination was going on but i'm like yeah in other words like especially <laughs> with the helicopter scenes i don't know what it looked like on for real because in the animated they have these huge weeds you know grabbing the helicopter I'm like there's no yeah, way they did that yeah. you know? <laughs> well that yeah no that that yeah no you're absolutely right that there is a little bit there is a quite a bit in that the last episode last two episodes of artistic license which no, i don't no. think does the story any harm i think it improves upon it but if you were like a real purist with this is it a you know an exact representation as as close as possible i think you'd be quite up in arms about that and maybe some people are i, I don't <laughs> follow people like that but uh the uh as far as i know because um I believe Patrick Troughton was quite... Uh, he, he was definitely not a Harrison Ford type who'd throw himself into his stunts or anything. <laughs> and fair enough. Um, so uh, he certainly didn't uh, control any of the helicopter business and didn't really <laughs> like going up in it. I don't think Fraser Hines had any issue, and I haven't seen that special feature yet, but I oh. do know from a previous thing that uh, the one concern with that was his kilt being uh, blown up. And I don't know if they mentioned this at all. So they, they did... Uh, weight down his kilt with uh, little uh, uh, like lead uh, bits they sewed into the bottom of his kilt <laughs> to make Mrs. sure because that would be very rude. <laughs> yeah, no, we, they, in um, the feature they do talk to the the, the pilot, the helicopter pilot, who's all called these... Mad Mike. Yes, um, <laughs> of course. And he's you know the and I can't remember sort of the main character. I mean, J- uh, Fraser Hines is there, but sort of the main character and whose name escapes me for the feature is one of the. Uh, Assistant, a producer assistant, or something. Yeah, I'm getting yeah. his title wrong. Mm. But anyway, he's the one who did all the site selection, who helped all the story and everything like that. And he's, he seems very nice. Um, but anyway, yeah, he was talking about meeting the pilot because he's the one who who found the site and who then went mm. and you know uh, did a recce of the site, as he says. Um, and you know, eventually, as you said, you know, of course, it's just the helicopter pilot who does the helicopter. Like you know, the second doctor doesn't know how to fly. But like you know, yeah. he was getting him to do all sorts of things. The pilot, because um, he you know he flew in between the uh, towers, and he was like, yeah, in the yeah. feature. He's like, I can't believe you did that. And the guy's like, eh, it's like driving a car. It's like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> if it were dangerous, I, I think I for a lot of the uh, for a lot of like the reaction shots of when they're in the cockpit, I think the the helicopter was flying quite low, sort of hovering mm-hmm. low. And they did a lot of zoom in, zoom out, kind of quick footage uh, to to make it sort of exciting. But that whole bit in the in the animation where they're sort of dodging the giant tendrils of weed mm-hmm. coming out of the sea is all sort of uh, artistic license because in the original that whole sequence is basically uh, it's a bit of a side story really of the Doctor failing really badly to fly this helicopter and nearly crashing. Ooh. So all of that. Sequence, which is quite extended, mm. would have been in the original. Him sort of flying about, trying not to hit the, the the walls until the the other helicopter pilot gets on the on the radio and tells him how to fly. But I kind of prefer how it is in that because you still get that bit in the animation mm. at the start where he doesn't know how to fly, and then you get them dodging the weed. And I think that might be a little bit of a reference to uh, there was a, a obviously all most of classic Doctor Who was novelised by a target novels across the the seventies and eighties and, and early nineties. And Fury from the Deep novelization was a was like a bumper one, so it was uh, they they couldn't cut it down, so they released a slightly larger novel than than the others, and it's quite beloved because it really expands, I think, on a lot. I haven't had the joy of reading it yet, but I know that the uh, the front cover, the the drawing on it is an oil rig, and it has this big piece of weed coming out of the sea. So I think in the animation that might be a little bit of a kind of a fan. 
recreation in a way of, of what that would be like. The, the other thing that there's a bit of artistic license to, although it, it's less clear, is the actual, at the end, we actually see sort of like individual weed monsters mm. coming out. Uh, I don't believe there was anything like that in the story. I think it was more, I mean, that the footage and the shots that we have show a hell of a lot of foam, <laughs> um, more foam as you we. get and and actually that's another trope for for that season in particular i think someone at the bbc had acquired a foam machine and this hadn't really been used much before and it appears about four or five times across a series of Troughton stories and this to my mind is the only one where it really works because you do get sea foam um but there, there's in the following year there's a load of foam in the seeds of doom uh with uh the ice warriors uh or is it the seeds of death i always get those two mixed up that's a tom baker story it's one of those with ice warriors in and there's loads of foam randomly um yeah uh, but this one it weren't and there's lots of that thrown about which i think to a modern eye or certainly to me it, it it's a bit i think it worked in the animation but when you see the telly snaps with the foam on it is literally the kind of foam machine that you get at sort of early 2000s I, I, was, I yelled foam, foam party every time every time it was delightful it was a <laughs> lot of fun for everybody and they would have sort of uh long these long tendrils with seaweed hanging off them that would be waved about within the foam and you can see some of that in some cut uh there were some alternative shots that weren't used that were discovered uh and then there was a load of behind the scenes sort of footage some cine film shot of them filming it and sort of wafting the foam about and things. So you can see some of these tendrils. And according to the photo novel description on the on the BBC site, which shows all the telesnaps, there's a bit towards the end where it says the the full weed creature is revealed, but there's no image that actually shows that. So I'm not quite sure how it would have appeared, but I, I think the artistic license of having these sort of individual weed creatures come out of out of the foam kind of I forgive them yeah. for oh, that. Yeah. I think I think it, it's it's worth it because we've seen so much foam and so many weed tendrils up to that point that we need it escalating a little bit more when he finally defeats the creature at the end. And one thing, and now that this was a big thing, it's just one of the things that you just think about after you've seen it. They didn't really explain where the monster came from. I mean, like, literally, I know where it came from. It came from the no. bottom of the earth or whatever, but, like... The fury. Is it, mm. is it alien? Fury, yeah. Is it just earth? Mm. Is it... I don't know. Yeah. I, it's it's interesting that there's never been, because, I mean, there's been so much, so many novels, so many audios. As far as I know, there's never been any kind of sequel or prequel to this story explaining, you know, when you've got the minutiae that are certainly in the 90s they went into to explain every little, little part, that there's never been some sort of reference to where this creature came from. I mean, the Doctor has his his big book of monsters that he looks up in the TARDIS, and and it's got the illustration of how the, I think it was the the seventeen hundreds mariners were attacked by a weed creature, but that's about it really. And the idea that it that it uses, it only becomes sort of evil because it 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 sort of feeds off the consciousness of humans. So it's like it in itself is just a force of nature and it's only really given an evil motive by humans uh, which isn't really expanded upon although there is a there is a 10th doctor novel that i read recently actually called wet world with david tennant's doctor and in that there's a similar creature which again doesn't have any kind of agency of itself but once it takes people over it, it uses their consciousness 
and, and of mm-hmm. course as evil um to try and take over and promulgate throughout the galaxy um uh so i don't know if that yeah that maybe was borrowed a little I just bit imagine but, um, yeah there's I no real explanation and a bit like that has sort of a cutaway sorry. of the center of the earth and like inside the center is like the Furies, the Silurians, the, like there's like a dozen things that are just in the earth. Anytime you drill, that you will the Rachnos. You will inevitably run. I'm like, wait, what was uh, from the? Yeah, they're all again, over the place. One this reminded me of was Inferno. You know, when they were doing the dr- the drilling there. And then, mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. I and I mean that you've got that that whole base under siege. You've got that disgruntled, uh, slightly mad. Uh, leader character who who the the subordinate has to to overrule just like an inferno yeah it very much became you know very formulaic in a sense um our our drinking game during this episode was i would say to the assistant (laughs) my wife is ill and then you would say i would say i'm in charge here yeah so anytime he says my wife is ill or i'm in charge here you will probably get be blitzed by the end of this episode i I love the fact as well though that he's so stern with him he's always saying to him like no you can't go home you've got to work i don't care and then he's like but but my wife and he's like all right then he's always giving in to him and yet never anything i was like to like 10 times like just with this boss he'll always say no but you just got to keep going for a little bit longer i think there's quite a lot of padding there i think for me the story starts to get a lot better a lot more pacey sort of episode four time actually around the time that victoria really starts uh i think it's done really beautifully actually in the animation when when jamie's sleeping and she has a bit of a breakdown (laughs) about you know why she uh doesn't want to carry on anymore and they did a really nice sort of moonlit sort of shadowy effect which mm-hmm. certainly is not what the original looked like it would have just been a little studio and and sort of you know lit um but uh i i think yeah that, that that's where it picks up a little bit for me um with that part well let's talk uh victoria because you know because one thing we've been uh bugging you both on and off the mic is companion farewell so um <laughs> Let's let's go, Jessica. I know you haven't seen. I mean, as much as I have, a whole bunch of Victoria. Yep. But I know you you probably had an opinion of her by the time she ended. But what did you think of Victoria? I mean, she was pretty screamy, mm-hmm. and in this one, it served a purpose. Right. But then in the featurette that we were looking at, you know, they were saying, "Oh, her agent was was probably encouraging her to move on, and she was tired of all of the screaming." And you know, literally, so. apparently, she had her uh, 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 a a hoarse voice, voice. Yeah. Yeah. to get uh, someone else to scream. Uh, but anyway, but yeah, uh, what would you like to say about the the, the leaving of Victoria, both uh, on screen and off screen? Well, I mean, I I've, I wouldn't say I've got into trouble before, but s- somewhat controversially, <laughs> I'm not a massive fan of Victoria as a character. I, I never have been. I I much prefer. I mean, Zoe does sometimes fall into the same trope of being screamy damsel in distress but uh, certainly in the mind robber which allegedly may have actually been written for victoria which might be the bit where there's the famous bit where she and the tardis explodes and she and jamie are on the tardis console spinning around and she just goes look jamie the doctor and then just screams inexplicably like three big Mm. screams and it's so for me out of character for zoe but very in character for victoria um i do kind of like her origin i like that you know she's uh, her introduction which i'm sure we'll, we'll talk about next year when they do the evil of the daleks uh animation <laughs> which apparently is on on its way um 
because she I like the fact that she's this prisoner of the Daleks and she's from the Victorian period. Uh, there are some really great character moments with her and Troughton, especially in the Tomb of the Cybermen, yes. where the Doctor reassures her and says about his family. But she is very much a, a, that is her her role is to scream and to to be needing of rescue. Um, apparently, just as a little uh, little bit of trivia, the original script uh, was had them defeating the uh, the weed monster with Jamie's bagpipes, um, <laughs> which <laughs> I'm not sure better would have been a Jessica. better idea. Mm, I mean, different. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it I'll might have honest, annoyed a lot Mary of Scottish could have people. Played this beautifully, <laughs> but yes, you're right. The the, the Scottish people would have been. Yeah. I, I think I may have been insulted on behalf of my my ancestors, but uh, yeah, I, I did find it very strange that she was like, "I don't want to go back on the TARDIS. I don't want to go back to Victorian age. I think I'll stay here at this oil mm. refinery." Yeah, just randomly be adopted by these people who incidentally that the the woman uh the, the guy's wife i've forgotten her name now but she's never actually met her before because she's been unconscious or or, or hypnotized and she's just shown up i mean you're talking about the the kind of things that are taken for granted considering the time about women's role mm. if you think about that lady she she first of all she got stung by the by this weed she's been uh, uh you know, left at home and ignored. Then the oak and quill come in and intoxicate her with the gas. She's abducted. She's possessed. She walks into the sea. And when the weed creature is defeated, incidentally, she doesn't drown um, somehow. She she then comes back and then they say, right, we're all OK. And then she presumably has to cook a slap up meal for everyone <laughs> at the yes. end. Like, yes. give the woman a break. <laughs> Well, and then she has to adopt a random, apparently teenage girl. She has to then look after in her house. I don't know, but uh, although they do this big hand holding thing, I assume it's a menage a trois waiting to happen here. (laughs) Well, I on that on that note, a little bit in the sense of implied subtle things. I I do quite like the the sort the very subtle romantic subplot between her and Mm. and jamie um which is you know hit it out at the end of it i don't know how it was played exactly in the original but their sort of farewell scene just the two of them in the evening before they leave on the beach the next day or or whenever it is i quite like that idea that it's almost like she wouldn't stay if he told her that he loved her and he wanted her to stay but because he doesn't Mm. and just kisses her on the cheek it's like, well, there's no reason for me to, to continue travelling. I think it's kind of tragic. I don't know if I'm just reading that into it mm. a little bit, but I I do like that that sort of romance because unlike a lot of companion farewells, they do actually remember her in the next story. And, <laughs> uh, you know, most of the time they just move on and forget about them. Um, and you know how this one ends with them being slightly grumpy with each other. Um, that the next one begins with them still grumpy and and Jamie is very distraught at the fact that Victoria has had to leave them and uh, um, he clearly had strong feelings for her that were never, it was very unrequited, um, we assume, Mm -hmm. um, being children's television in the 60s. (laughs) Um, But I think what's interesting about Victoria's farewell story, unlike, say, uh, Polly and Ben's, is that uh, she's not just written out there there is a sense uh you know lead, there is a little bit more of a lead into mm. it 
I like the fact that she's sort of getting tired with the travelling. She doesn't just randomly go, no, I've had enough at the end, which happened many times before and many times after. I like the little the little seeds that are planted moving along. And it's kind of believable because she has been so hysterical and terrified through most of her journeys. You, you believe it, you know. Um, uh, but it does... I don't know if it begins a trait, but it certainly uh, certainly is one where you have the story where the companion who up to then has been pretty useless <laughs> suddenly becoming useful. I mean, where this Victorian uh, young lady, you know, brought up in the etiquette of the mid-Victorian period has learnt to pick lock. I don't think <laughs> she suddenly is a dab hand with a hair Very Charlie-esque. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she, and um, she has a bit more age. And the fact that I, I've always kind of thought that her scream being used as a sonic weapon to defeat the the monster was kind of clever um i do have some fears that perhaps it's slightly misogynistic i don't yeah. know but I, li- I like that idea of him concentrating her scream although yeah apparently she she was she uh deborah watling herself couldn't do the screaming when they recorded it and i read somewhere i don't know how true it is that apparently um it was uh, Annika Wills's scream, who played Polly, that they had recorded for the Underwater Menace at some point, and they sort of processed it and used it. But I don't know how true that is. Well, they said uh, I in read the somewhere that we watched the. Um... You have to drink every time we say the word featurette. <laughs> yeah. That's a new thing. I, the, one of the people they interview, <laughs> um, she's part of the, the featurette, but she doesn't actually uh, present for the the whole gang getting together. Um, I'm trying to remember what her role was. Oh. She, she was, she was, you know, part of the show, staff of the show. I don't know if she was some sort of production or scene worker or yeah. something. You would have a production assistant usually, who might be the yeah. person on the or like the floor manager who'd be on the set, and the director who'd be up in the gallery would probably they would talk to them through the headphones, and then they would direct the actors mm-hmm. for them. That's what John Nathan Turner used to do before he was producer. Oh, okay. But yeah. So maybe yeah, she was, was yeah, that. She, she talked a little about the episode, but yeah, she was saying like yeah, they just like go ahead and do that, and she's like okay, and they just pointed to her. So and... she did the screaming <laughs> yeah. that they recorded. Yeah. So yeah. Oh right. That's her claim okay. anyway. Yeah, yeah, I think. Have, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, no, fair yeah, enough. It's probably far more likely than it being Annika <laughs> Wills. I doubt they would have kept that recording necessarily. Yeah, for that he's not good at. And of course, talking about Sonics, yes. this is the the first story with the Sonic screwdriver in. Although I have an incredibly geeky bit of trivia for that, which I don't think a lot of people know, which and certainly in the animation they chose to either ignore or weren't aware of themselves. But the sonic screwdriver is not how it appears in the animation, not not in the actual show itself. Um, it was only very recently that uh, a guy who has a blog. Um, What's it called? Uh, the Zero Room, I think, hmm. is his blog. He did a load of research, as you do, to discover exactly the sonic screwdrivers, because plural, that that uh, Patrick Troughton used. And apparently there were three uh, each time they appear. This, the Dominators and War Games, they're actually slightly different. And in this one, uh, I think the intention was it, or, and it may even have been selected, was it to be a, a, a pen light. Uh, like he uses in the war games. Um, uh, in fact, I think it was the actual one used because apparently uh, uh, Patrick Troughton dropped it down the the pipe when they were filming, and so the actual one that's used was a plastic whistle off Deborah Watling's <laughs> life jacket that she's got on. 
Um, so the original sonic screwdriver, despite how it is depicted, is just a little white plastic whistle, which is very disappointing. <laughs> but allegedly, that 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 is what that was the original uh, screwdriver as used That's in, what in that one. That's what I get you for Christmas. Uh, and it is interesting that it is just used to mm-hmm. unscrew. So it is a yeah. screwdriver. They, um, um, they throw some shade, as the kids say in the featurette. Uh, Fraser Hines yes. sh- throws some shade. About the yeah. modern use of the screwdriver. So, uh. He's like, now it's just <laughs> cheating. Yeah, well, you know, to, yeah, I mean, to, in my own thoughts on it have been, as, and I understood why I understood why John Nathan Turner destroyed it in mm-hmm. Peter Davison's time, because it it had become, you know, a way of solving stories. It was a, mm. a deus ex machina a lot of the time. Certainly in Tom Baker's era, and but then Converse, I also understand why Russell T. Davis brought it back. I mean, he said, when you want the Doctor moving and you want this fast-pacey show, you don't want everyone stopping at a door for five minutes trying to work mm-hmm. out how to get it open. Although I suppose forty-two with, with Martha <laughs> pretty much is that That's Christian story. Um, but uh, yeah, but uh, then saying that this idea of it being mm. a magic wand that can do everything certainly in the matt smith era is it, it went too far the other way kind of thing um but i i don't know i into the murky world of merchandising i don't know if it might be a little bit of a, a bbc command they say right you need a new screwdriver and it must be used because we need to sell x amount of <laughs> plastic screwdrivers well, that's, what always, I mean, a bit of a that's what always struck me about the 12th doctor sonic and maybe because i wasn't a fan of the 12th doctor initially but i thought they gave him the new one, and I was like, okay. He never really used it that much, which fine. But then he just went to the sunglasses no. next, which that's another discussion. But like, I don't think that's ever, for me, and you know, fans can disagree, it never caught on because he never used it. And then he discarded it quickly. So I'm like, no. oh, I'm not going to buy that one, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I think that the story about the sunglasses, the fact that Capaldi himself is very anti, like, fans having uh, to buy into fandom. Um, I I I believe he does autographs. I'm not sure, but uh, he doesn't like uh, like uh, my my collection of plastic that, that are my figures in my case downstairs. For example, he didn't do a signature edition of that because he doesn't tend to promote that idea that to be a fan you have to buy stuff. And I kind of like that. I mean, haven't been a fan himself, and also a fan from the period before there was the Star Wars merchandising blitz that you know taught everyone how to make billions out of these things um i think he liked the idea of people be kids especially being able to pick things up and you know this is my sonic screwdriver or something so i think the rationale behind the sunglasses for him was that you know all kids have a pair of sunglasses or if you know they're very cheap and they everyone can pretend it's a sonic sunglasses so i think that was the way he brought it in Uh, i think it was his idea um the the new screwdriver that he had i think probably was yeah, the BBC sort of edict of you need to have a new toy out for Christmas kind of thing. Because notice it was introduced right at the end of a season. Um, so he could then use it on Christmas Day and all that. They could get it out ahead for the shops and all that. But I, I don't tend to look into all the merchandise side of things, so I don't know all the ins and outs of it. But I imagine it I mean, was, not to go it further was something down like that. Rabbit hole, but I, I don't know if it was Doctor Who Monthly or some or um, Celestial Toy Room or something, but in the past like three months, I remember reading an article that apparently Peter... When he was younger, he and a friend like broke into, I don't know, Doctor Who set or or filming or something. Like, so, yeah. Well, kind of, yeah. No, it was in Doctor Who magazine a couple of months ago. There was a feature uh, because uh, yeah, 
I can't remember all the details now, which I'll have to research them again in the future. But uh, uh, Peter Capaldi was uh, either the joint president of a Doctor Who appreciation. It wasn't the Doctor Who Appreciation Society that came later, but he was the head of like the Doctor Who fan club when he was young, and and so was his friend or something. And uh, they managed to get on to... I don't think they they snuck on. I think they did actually manage... Because in their role, I think they did like... His friend was a, a guy who had a fanzine, um, and he got like an interview with John Pertwee, I think, and so they managed to go on to set when they were filming Death of the Daleks or something in 1970. What was that four, something like that? So yeah, he was definitely much. Uh, <laughs> he was in there, you know, oh, at the beginning. Okay, but back to the jury from the deep. Um, no, no, it's, it's climbing I, I, out of the rabbit exactly. hole. Exactly. Um, but yeah, no, I do like. I, as I say, I do like the idea that they use Victoria's sort of screaming as a as an aspect of. I think it had become an in joke anyway because as i say that wasn't in the original script the original script was jamie's bagpipes but then they said no i don't like that so we changed it and then i think it was the production team rather than the writer who may have changed it to to victoria's scream and i think patrick troughton had an affectionate nickname <laughs> for her which was old leather lungs because she was one of the the pros of screaming and i think at that time you know, being the the way movies and TV was, and uh, a young actress as one of the desirable characteristics that they have was to be a good screamer. And I think, I think Deborah Watling was known as one of the <laughs> best screamers queen. in the business, or something. Uh, <laughs> it would be I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. so, as an actress, I'm so inherently bothered by this. <laughs> it would be as if like. I know. Uh, uh, well, you you better not look at what what Deborah Watling went on to do later on. Then, if oh, really? Like that kind of male gaze, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, she kept, she got a whole new. She went on and did a a World War Two drama, if you want to call it that, called Danger UXB, where she was known as uh, Naughty Norma. So, uh, and those like some of the photography of her from the time. I think it's ironic that right. things like Oak and Quill you know, breathing their gas. We can still see that clip because it was cut out in the Australian census cut it out. But then you see it like some of the the way that women were dressed and depicted in these things. And it it seems like a complete, I don't know, contradiction, hypocrisy in in how prim and proper they were uh, expected to be, I suppose, because sometimes they were quite quite revealing you know and i suppose that might be partly to do with fashion Mm. i mean you look at like katie manning and doctor who for example i mean some of those skirts are just obscene as 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 was we'd say at school (laughs) um that she wore but uh you know i don't know it just seems a a Mm. bit of an irony of the time really yeah especially for someone (laughs) who grew up in the victorian period as well (laughs) using her scream um as the weapon would be like as if uh, Perry's spandex top was used to defeat a monster uh, during the, uh, you know, or her scream. yeah, yeah, <laughs> or, or something else. Well, I mean that, yeah, I mean that's the thing about Perry as well is that she she's kind of reduced in her television stories at least to every other villain seems to be lusting after her as a sort of it kind of works in case of Andrazani because it's very much a pastiche mm. on um, Phantom of the Opera and you know and how he worships her beauty but then after a while like the Borad in the time in Time Ash wants her and everyone wants a piece of a shock eye <laughs> wants to eat her literally <laughs> you know, mm. they do become very uh, literally objectified. We, we have finished our third Doctor watch for the first time but would you think uh Jessica, would you sort of think about revisiting? Mm, I heard, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I I always like Troughton and Hines together. I think they're a lot of fun. This would have been an interesting episode for the Third Doctor, though. Um, all of the the action. He would have been flying the helicopter. Yeah. he would have known how to fly the helicopter. Yeah, that would have been a lot of fun. Yeah, I don't think Pertwee would have allowed himself to be depicted as not competent. <laughs> yeah, <the roles. laughs> yeah uh. exactly. <laughs> In fact, there was the one point where the helicopter lifts off and then a lady in a car or some sort of car boat or something also takes off. And I was like, this is this is a Pertwee episode mm. right here. <laughs> the helicopter mm. would have had Who 3 on the... Uh, yeah. <laughs> he would have called it yeah. you know, Bertha or something. Yeah. Uh-huh. But yeah, I always... And this is in no way a criticism, but I, I think the second Doctor serials, and maybe it's just the ones I've seen recently tend to be very frenetic, um, again, compared to the third Doctor, where it's usually one person at a time, um, you know, and, and the, someone's in control. But, like, second Doctor, it's like, I, I look to, like to look at the scripts where it says, like, you know, you have, like, uh, you know, in the technical business, we have the dual convo on the script page. Like, you have, like, five of them at the same time, where everyone's like, you know, and that just seems to be, that feeling here is that everything's, like, out of control and frenetic, and we're screaming, and we're panicking, and we're running, and that's always seems to be very second doctor. He's our only hope! Yes. <laughs> I think that also might be... Uh, in the sense of of how it then comes across on screen might be a product of the way that production certainly the stuff shot on set or on video was was recorded because we you're kind of in a in a midway period here between the the way that early doctor who was shot you know william hartnell where the whole episode was recorded pretty much in a in an evening and there was no location footage and two recording breaks by this point we've moved on a little bit but essentially and pretty much continued until the 80s that was still the kind of the process of rehearsing during the week and then filming on a friday night kind of thing um uh and i think that uh, because of the expense of filming the technology that they had there was that sense of getting it all done whereas i think with with pertwee certainly in pertwee's first season there's a lot more location work they're shot a lot more like films with single cameras and so perhaps that changes it up a little bit because i think you know there are points certainly uh you can see throughout Troughton's era and certainly Hartnell's era where people you know speak before they should speak and then have to backtrack you know like you'd see on a stage play or something you know that hasn't been rehearsed that much <laughs> you you've got uh people you know coming in too quickly um you know and and talking over each other and maybe that that frenetic at, uh atmosphere that comes out of it might be as a result of those production sort of uh uh restraints in a way mm. and i didn't realize because you know i'm not as versed um for some reason that mr quill soundless scream <laughs> is such like a gif mm. or meme in my mind that i didn't realize it's i don't think i even know if it's <laughs> doctor who to tell you the truth but i'd seen that look before and on you know on the internet and it realize there's something yeah. about it though isn't that is there it, it's kind of it's simultaneously ridiculous and silly but also kind of freaky mm-hmm. as well and it, that makes it freakier i mean they were very much based on on laurel and hardy visually um if you couldn't tell um you know you've got the short fat one and the tall thin one but uh because apparently i think pemberton had met them and so he used that as inspiration but they're not very much like them and i always think mr oak always the little one always looks he reminds me of um the guy from the monsters oh, oh grandpa oh, yeah. guy yeah they're great i i don't know it's the hair maybe and the round well, we thought face. the um 
and again, we forget names. The the Dutch consultant was very Frankenstein monster in the animation. Oh, Van Lutjens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah he he's quite. Yeah, he looks kind of imposing and, and big, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, but Oak and Quill. I don't. I, they're always kind of. They should have been in it more. Mm. I think. Uh, I mean, they're always sort of lurking in the background, and they sort of add that in with the animation as well. You sort of spot them there. Uh, but I, I think they could have had more of a, a lead. Maybe there could have been some sort of confrontation where they spoke the the thoughts of the the weed creature a bit more with the Doctor. There could have been a bit of a mm-hmm. face off. I think if it had been a Pertwee story, maybe it would probably have happened because you need to have you know the the Pertwee the Third Doctor having some sort of moral debate discussion with the the, the villain at some point. But uh, I do like that little bit when they they go around her yeah. house. And and he's all he's got that creepy. He's so uh, posh, you know. Most of the characters in this, okay, they've all got generally received pronunciation because it's a BBC show from the sixties. But he's kind of he's out of time. There's kind of a strange sort of almost gothic quality, and the fact that they never give him first names. I am Mister Oak, and here is Mister Quill, and. Uh, yeah, although strangely in the animation, I don't know why. There's a few things in the animation that are different. For example, because I like when I watch these, I like to sort of glance down at the telly snaps as I go and see how, whether they've recreated the image or whether they've taken any artistic license. You know, um, and one thing I noticed strangely was a lot of the shots were flipped. The positions of characters were flipped. So if there was a shot where say the Doctor was on the left and Van Lutjens was on the right, they'd flipped it round. And I'm not quite sure why they did that. And the other thing is, later on, when uh, when uh, Robson is in his room, sort of mm. having his nightmares and things, in the original, it's Mr Quill, the tall one, who's outside at his door. But in this, they made it Mr Oak. And it's kind of strange. Like, why would you do that? I don't <laughs> quite know why they would... Maybe they had more, I don't know, animations for him or something but i think they they captured um the the creepiness especially like the weird smile that mr quill did they've had quite a few shots they got out of that one <laughs> yeah. big teeth and all that um yeah uh i think the big letdown generally of the story is the fact that uh similar to faceless ones there's kind of a very mm-hmm. quick resolution and I think, unlike probably any other Troughton story, no one dies in the story Everybody at all, as lives. far as we know, including the monster. You know, even the monster itself retreats back to the sea, and we're just like, oh no, it won't <laughs> bother anyone we're again. We're going to put a fence well, up. Won't it? <laughs> we're still going to be, no. yeah. Um, but you see, uh, you know, Mr. Oak, Mr. Quill, and you, you never see them uh, returned. They're all, they're very much like a side characters and i think they're they're too i and maybe their their importance to the story is sort of overblown in our minds perhaps because the only real extended clip we have of the faceless ones is the part when they enter her room and breathe the the gas on her uh, with the creepy music um so perhaps that's you know amplified their importance in the history of the story and like you say become a, a meme and things like that but uh, yeah i do i do kind of i think there's a bit of a missed opportunity there to perhaps flesh out yeah, their character it actually seemed more. at the end um and this isn't a complaint but just watching it for the first time or at least for the first time in a long time um certainly because of the animation that the ending almost seemed like extended like i thought it was going to end quicker than it did because i wasn't looking at the time and so i'm like i almost thought it was going to end on a kind of like tropish american horror movie of like 
or is it still out there? Like some shot would come with like a weed still yeah. waving or it's just something. Because <laughs> um, I'll tell you who I actually... Which is how Tomb of the Cybermen ends with the oh, cyber yeah. arm clutching at the because end. Because I actually had suspic- like that, yeah. suspicions about a character... <laughs> Um, because again, no, no names. The guy at the keyboard, the control guy, the guy in the uh, Davros um chair, um, which I thought was weird. Um, but anyway, because oh, yeah, yeah. At, at the confrontation and <laughs> the animation, at least the second doctor's like, you know, press the button, press the button. The guy doesn't press the button because it looks like he's scared. But like, what if that was a put on? Because then at the end, he's kind of still at the chair, and I'm like, he's he's still kind of. I feel like he maybe he was in charge the whole time, <laughs> you know. So. Yeah, it would have been a good little little extra yeah. twist as such, and perhaps would have made uh, Victoria's leaving at the end in some spin-off material. She Ooh. could have been fighting the weed creature again, but having a bit more of a, a lead role rather than just a, a thing to be used in a way. But no, you're right. That's one thing I did notice, because you have this very quick resolution, and then you have, quite unusually, especially for the time, a bit of an extended farewell uh, and a little bit of character to business, you know. Um, you have that little bit where you see the characters afterwards yes. and the Doctor <laughs> actually stays behind and sort of doesn't just sling his hook kind of thing straight away. Um, and the farewell uh, on the beach. Um, and the weird sort of strange TARDIS thing. There's the one other thing you can see, which is uh, they reuse the shot randomly of the TARDIS landing physically like like a rocket like one of those spacex rockets um on on the water and somehow floating um they reuse that shot in the war games when they're trying to escape from the time lord so you can see that that actual that shot that way uh i think the actual thing was a was a little police box model that they had on piano wire that they lowered from a from a helicopter probably the ones they were using at the other point um (laughs) But I suppose that kind of links in a little bit with David Tennant uh, shooting off like a rocket when uh-huh. uh, Runaway Bride, I think it is, at the end. Uh, he shoots off uh, actually vertically, like I suppose a lot of people that hadn't seen Doctor Who kind of assumed <laughs> that's what the TARDIS did. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I do, I, do, I do think, I mean, for the time, uh, despite how underwritten Victoria is in most of her stories, she... I mean, she is very pathetic, uh, uh, you know, in the literal sense that she sort of, she provokes a kind of a a pity and an emotion. You you sympathise for her and feel that she's vulnerable. And that in itself is questionable. Um, But, you know, at least she is fleshed out a little bit more and she doesn't just... Uh, she doesn't just meet someone and fall in love with her. I'm off to get married like so many companions Mm. before and, and later do. Um, she does go off on her own, um, and her story is sort of taken up in a in a another oh, no. uh, straight oh, no. to video oh, no. Richard, drama don't do um, this to us. <laughs> of the '90s. But but <laughs> but unlike that one, uh, own solution. This was actually novelised as well, uh, and I haven't actually seen the film, but I've read the book, and it has the Brigadier and Kate Stewart ah. um, when she's younger. Um, and it has, uh, yeah, Victoria, and it has the great <laughs> intelligence and the Yetis in it again. So it's kind of an interesting. I don't, I don't think the the drama is really. It doesn't live up to the ambition it, of the plot, but the the book is quite good. And she 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 doesn't actually become like the hero who has to save the day. She actually becomes sort of 
manipulated and controlled by the great intelligence and uh, becomes almost the villain in the story. So it's a it's an interesting little little sequel in a way. Better or worse than the Liz Shaw? Uh, better. Okay, okay, okay. It has Yeti and Nicholas Courtney. In okay, it, so. you're, right, you're, right, you're right. It actually acknowledges Doctor Who properties. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Um, all right, well, let's, we've been talking for a while, so I guess let's sort of uh, conclude talking about sort of the meta aspects, or at least, you know, outside the story presented. Um, what did you think of the animation, Jessica? Uh, there were places where it felt quite stilted. Um I don't think I liked it as much as I've liked some of the other stuff. Yeah, and I mean, of course, you know, we should note this was a, a COVID production, um, you know, so I, I don't know if that, well, I mean, I know it did affect things, but I don't know if it affected them more than, you know, in a perfect world it would have. Um, that this, I mean, it's going to sound like a critique. I don't mean it to. Look, it's an animated second doctor. I'm not complaining. We got it. It's fine. It did Where's seem... my Marco Polo? <laughs> well, That's yes, what yes. I want to know. Um, but uh, <laughs> it did seem a little cartoony. It's mm. how some of the people look sometimes. And I don't know if I can yeah. really spot the difference or tell you why. And then there were times where the um, two-dimensionality seemed very, like, I don't know. And again, I'm Hard. trying to remember all the other animations, yeah. and I can, of course, in my head. Like that, there wasn't that much three dimensionality that they were trying to do. Um, like it was like I remember yeah. the the near one of the the scenes. I don't know if it was episode five or something. They're all lined up, looking at the computer screen. Like everyone has to be in, yeah. in a line because they can't animate anything. <laughs> but anyway, I don't know. I, I, again, it's not a critique; just something I noted based mm-hmm. on past productions. You know, I, I figured that we'd. Well, I believe that this is a different production company than the one who worked on the Faceless Ones, um, and they've got a slightly different style to it. Um, they're obviously not using the same... Uh, um, I can't remember the term now, but the, the the same... You know, they have a prepared set of facial expression, Patrick Trout and head right. sculpts and things like that they've done for other productions. These are newer ones done for this production. Um, and I think... I'm not sure, but I would be willing to bet that they probably spent less money on the visuals of this than they did on the faceless ones, guessing by the fact that they had enough money left over to actually do some bonus features, whereas oh, they didn't true. so much for the previous one. But that's pure supposition on, on my part. I think you're right. The One of the things, and I said bef- when, when, you, when you kindly invited me on here before, um, that I really liked about the Faceless Ones and also indeed really liked about Power of the Daleks was how they recreated the the, the backgrounds, the sets. And whereas I think these were quite atmospheric, certainly with the lighting, there was a lot less detail mm. and they didn't seem as three-dimensional as some of those sets that they had built for, for previous ones. Um, but I think you're right, there, there are noticeable differences. But I think uh, I think you kind of get used to it, really, after yeah. a while. Um yeah. I don't know. Did you watch this one in black and white again? Of course, like the, Richard. The you well. know how I, I roll. <laughs> well, you see, I I watched it in color uh, again. Um, I know, but I've se- you know I've seen the telly snaps in black and white <laughs> you know many times, and uh, and I, I was just sort of interested because I thought, you know, will that because it doesn't look like the original for me anymore, and I don't really right. I don't really try and imagine. I kind of think, you know, these people have worked on on this and I kind of want to see their work. Mm. Uh and I, I actually in color I thought it was quite it was quite good. Um certainly with as I say with the lightings there was a lot of color in the lights and color shifts between lighting of different parts of the the image which I quite liked as well. It wasn't just sort of flat all 
lit like you know they actually thought about the sort of of more cinematic lighting i think and i think that was enhanced in color whereas i think it would be less impressive in black and white um certainly that scene as i say when 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 victoria is in the bunk room and jamie's Mm -hmm. sleeping i think that looks quite good certainly in color um so I don't know. Uh, I did get the the special edition re-release of Power of the Daleks, and that only has the black and white version on. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I don't know if I'm I'm being uh, you know irre- irreverent or something of the source material. But. No, but I have to admit though, I don't know. You know, there's limits where my fandom will go. Um, but like, you can't re-release something I just bought three years ago so i mean you can but i'm not gonna buy it so. yeah I, I thought that at first yeah yeah but i think that the, uh, the reason why they did that was because there were there were quite a few things that they had done incorrectly right. um certainly with the regeneration at the start and things like that um so yeah that was why they did that but no i understand that i sympathize with that entirely <laughs> having bought so many versions of star wars over the years um <laughs> and they're never they're better picture quality, but they always, ugh, yeah. having to watch. I'm sorry to completely take on know. another tangent for a second, but the bit with uh, the bit where Greedo oh. now says McClunky, <laughs> that's just like the oh, you've made it. Like I should not be laughing at one of the best films ever made. You know, I have a, a, a friend, Drew Stewart, um, who I, I don't know if you can want to look up his Twitter. He's literally made it his life's mission mm-hmm. to uh, berate in a good way berate Disney. For not releasing <laughs> the original movie, I'm amazed they haven't. Um, I'm really amazed and, they haven't. And he's like, and so when McClunky, like he, hit, like that was him at midnight. He did like a screen. I think it was in Wired magazine or something. It was in big thing that he wrote up comparing, like, because he's he does like the like what's different in every movie. Like he does all that. Yeah, yeah. So yes, he. I and I'm not a Star Wars fan, but I read his whole thing about his screed, but in a good way about you know you've done this, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this. Why don't you release? the original movie yeah. again as yeah. a release make it an option but and so yeah he's he's that's his life's mission yeah it is bizarre it is bizarre i mean at least like for doctor who there have been stories released on dvd where albeit not with the same expense that were put into the star wars re-releases but they've you know sometimes tweaked a special effect or they've put some cgi kind of things into it certainly um, the time warrior uh, benefits from from that there's an optional special effect where the castle blows up at the end it's not very convincing in the original version but they put an extra explosion in um uh but they're optional you know you can watch the original and the one with the the thing so that's something i think that the bbc or at least the the people in charge of the dvds have always understood that fans are purists and they will want the original version warts and all but it's nice to have a little version, which is why, you know, it's it's quite good that these DVD releases have a black and white animated version, a colour animated version, and a sort of telesnap reconstruction. You know, they understand the fan mind far better than some of these big multinational companies with these billion-dollar properties uh, do. Of course, they've had more time to learn the fan mind. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. That's true. I think... I think you know there are there are cash grabs uh, with with releases for popular stuff, and then there are things which are genuine labors of love for the people involved. I mean, I can think of like, for example, the Next Generation Blu-ray release uh, from a few years back. Mm-hmm. For me, anyway, seemed like that where they 
they had to obviously they'd scan in all the the film to get the blu-ray but of course all the effects had been put on later on the video so they had to recreate those effects didn't they and they could have gone crazy and done something that was far beyond the capabilities perhaps of the time but as far as i know i mean you're i might be saying something completely mm-hmm. sacri- like <laughs> uh, uh, blasphemous now but as far as i could tell um they generally kind of recreated the visuals albeit with you know in high definition as had been in the in the original 90s and late 80s yeah, in versions. fact if i remember correctly the only uh, complaint i can remember about the special effects was actually the, the reverse that they didn't fix things we knew to be wrong there was and i can't and i can't remember yeah the episode, yeah but there's some episode where the phasers on the enterprise come out from the bottom of the ship and they're like well look if you're doing the effects again can't you fix it so it comes from the phaser ray and they're like <laughs> Well, we didn't know, and we're like... Yeah, well, I suppose in that case, you've got kind of a yeah. conflicting thing. But that's the same with Star Wars. I mean, there's so many things that they didn't mm-hmm. fix for years, and they threw in all the random stuff. Like, Darth Vader had a white lightsaber in one shot for years, and they never seemed to <laughs> fix that, um, and all kinds of things. So, you know, I mean, that's when they're doing this, certainly when they're doing these these animations, you know, there's that temptation, I suppose, to, you know, really do something completely different. Obviously, they've got to bear in mind the the audience out there that they want to they can't necessarily make them purely for collectors i suppose you know they've got to have some broad appeal which probably is why there's black and white and color versions and things like that on there um so you know the temptation to completely change something you know uh and you know you could argue that they do that a little bit like with the weed and this one coming out of the sea with the helicopter um but it, it doesn't radically alter the, the source material as such. You know, it's not like, you know, inserting someone saying McConkey, you know. But, <laughs> yeah, there must be a temptation sometimes, though, to do something. Uh, it will be interesting to see when they do Evil of the Daleks, because in the last two stories of that, they, they go back to Scarrow and you go to the Dalek city and there's they go in across uh, uh, you know bridges and ramps with all Daleks driving around. You've got the Emperor Dalek in its throne room, and of course in the original, whilst you know the the, the models and the the visuals of that were impressive for the time, they wouldn't be like what you'd see say in uh, in in a Peter Capaldi Dalek story. So it'll be interesting to see how they balance the how they visualise that between what it's supposed to look like and what it actually looked like, you know. But I've got faith that they'll find a happy medium, you know, between between the two. Awesome. All right. Jessica, final thoughts I about think. Fury from the Deep? Yeah. Yeah. Nick Fury wasn't in it at all. I know. Nor, nor not, there were many few Greek <laughs> references. There were not as many Greek references yeah. as I expected. The yeah. 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 So, uh, I don't know. So it sounds like you were disappointed largely. I was largely <laughs> disappointed. Nobody in an eye patch. <laughs> I don't even know why you wasted your money. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed again without having seen it. You know, it's new Doctor Who to me, um, and so if I haven't seen it in a while, and of course it's restored, um, and it's it's full glory as much as it can be but i i enjoyed it i think mm-hmm. there were times where i you know you're talking about richard about uh being um loyal to the original there were times in maybe an episode two or three mm-hmm. where i'm like this is the audio and i know they're being you know this is what happened but like i would have cut this like dead silence <laughs> you know and i don't yeah. know what you do in its place but i'm yeah. like you don't have to be that faithful um but anyway yeah. well and the, there was actually one moment and i think it might have <laughs> been in that nighttime scene when um, jamie is sleeping 
and Victoria picks up a glass and drinks, and I was like, this is really random. And and then it makes the clunk <laughs> sound, and I was like, oh, okay. So they had <laughs> yeah. to do something, because, but there's no, that was... Yeah. I think a part of that, I think you're right. I mean, there will be parts, I think, that, that drag just because of the way that the production was filmed, you know, and also mm-hmm. the need to pad mm-hmm. stories out to fit the, the episode count because in those days, you know, a story, they didn't say, right, this story, I'm writing this story and it's got to six episodes and this is how long it is. And they'll say, right, we'll make that. They would commission the 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 number of episodes they needed to fill was there before they made the commission so sometimes people go right i've got this great idea and then when they actually come to write it it doesn't really fill those six episodes Mm. and so you get those padding you get those running up and down corridors you get him saying about his wife is ill so many times over and over again (laughs) can i see her Um, i'm in charge here no no but at the same time i think that there is a little bit of a uh an issue there with the fact that the animation um doesn't truly capture the the acting that perhaps may have been going on the facial acting especially with someone like Troughton I think they've they've done a good image of him but then no one's ever going to be it's like in the like Patrick Troughton's doctor has always famously been very difficult to write for because so much of Troughton's doctor is about his performance and his face he has such a fantastic or had such a fantastic face and so just and he was very very good at facial acting you know he was a he was a proper tv star like most actors had done theater or or things like that he he was there at the inception of television mm. he'd done it for years and years live television in those days so he knew how to perform for a camera on tv um and i don't think the animation is ever going to be able with the best will in the world be able to capture that kind of visual interest that a good television or film actor can do with their their with their face, so that might be an element of it. You know, it's a very subtle thing, but without being able to see it, you know, mm. it's very very visual. Yes. And Richard, what are your final thoughts? And then um, why don't you share where folks can find you and uh, any projects <laughs> you may be working on? Fair enough. Uh, well, you know, I mean, for me, I, I most of the time fury from the deep for me has been a, an audio experience and it was only really on my my rewatch that i did a few years back where i went through everything in order where i actually sat down and listened to it with the telly snaps um so it was never one that was particularly prominent when i thought about doctor who uh, you know i thought about stories that were extant that i had that i could watch easily um but I, you know, I think it's got it's got some things going for it. it. Is it is a bit run of the mill? It is a bit formulaic, even for the time, because as I say, you know, they'd settled into that that groove, that formula. Um, but it, you know, as a as another example of sort of the proto unit Pertwee era story, I think it does quite well, and there's some good performances in it. Um, uh, I think it's a little bit too long. I think it should have been about four episodes. But I think you can say that for a lot <laughs> of six episode Doctor Who stories yes. from from the period. Um, it's very much one of those ones which even I find I find it difficult to sit and watch the whole thing through back to back. But of course, it's one of those things that you've got to remember wasn't intended to be to be seen that way, sort of week to week. Um, it, it it's some missed opportunities there's some things that are not so so great but i do think it, it's one of the better Troughton era stories and it's a shame that we can't 
really see it i think mm. uh it would probably be more highly regarded or more remembered if if we had it it's certainly better than the dominators which came the next year which we do have all of and i would i would swap it in a heartbeat <laughs> for something like fury from the deep <laughs> partly because of its views uh but that's for another day <laughs> perhaps um yeah so you know and i'm glad we've got it as always with these with these animations you know it's nice to be filling those gaps in the, in the library and again it's always appreciated that there's a lot of love and, and attention and 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 knowledge put into these things it isn't someone who's just come in and gone right there's the story and with all the enthusiasm of the world has created something this is made and directed by people who really know their stuff and have got little details right or made decisions where they have changed things that still aren't you know offensive to us hardcore fans in some way you know <laughs> um so yeah it's it's a it's a nice little addition uh and uh thinking about the uh the uh, the pertwee era um my next uh, companion video will be about the brigadier because he was the winner of the uh of the poll on on patreon um by quite a margin actually uh, i realized that i had omitted him from the previous poll which is probably why he got so many votes <laughs> this time round. and i think the reason why i admitted it because there is some controversy people go well the brigadier is not a companion you know he's a recurring character but i thought well come <laughs> on I mean, the the rule used to be before the modern series that if they travelled in the TARDIS, then they were a companion. And the Brigadier has travelled in the TARDIS a couple of times, so he kind of counts in my mind. Um, but I won't be working on that just yet because I'm currently uh, really trying to do my best to realise. I know this is quite an anticipated one, but I'm obviously working on the David Tennant yes. era of uh, of my main series, so that will be coming up. Uh, I do. I mean, I don't like to, a few people have said, we've got a rough date when it's going to be ready. The problem is because it's not my full-time job, although I'd love it to be, I can't always promise. And I've been quite busy with work and all those kinds of things recently. Um, but it's certainly, you know, it's continuing apace. And um, I'm, I, I do hope I do justice because I know next to Tom Baker, this is probably going to be one of my more scrutinized videos. Um, so I want to try and cover everything. Uh, comprehensively but still make it entertaining because it's such a, a a period of doctor who there's so much i could talk about <laughs> you know uh, and that's where it's where it exploded internationally many, really know. yeah so it's it's judging it you know what should i talk about what should perhaps i leave for later what what do i need to cover what is the sort of the, the through line for this one um and uh yeah i've got I, I'm, I'm right. I actually posted a picture on Twitter, uh, uh, well, uh, a request really on Twitter, because one of the things I really need for the video is a picture of David Tennant when he's young. Now, you wouldn't think that's difficult to find because he's such a well-known actor and people really love him and probably have shrines <laughs> to him in their houses and things like that. But actually, it's very, very difficult to find a picture of him when he's a young boy. And that's fair enough, he's, you know, if he wants to be private and all that kind of thing. But for for a key thing is certainly for the beginning of my video i really need a picture of him when preferably when he's a young child because that's when he was a fan obviously of doctor who uh so anyway that's what i'm working on now and uh yeah as i mentioned i uh yeah i put out a, a request for anyone who may have found a picture of young david Tennant on my twitter because i finally decided to join the, <laughs> the twitter verse after the uh some lovely subscribers shared my uh, last companion video about uh, Jamie with um, Fraser Hines hey. himself. 
and uh, and he enjoyed it so i was uh, yeah i was very flattered by that and i thought right i i suppose i better have a twitter presence um so uh, yeah i bet clever dick films on twitter on facebook and on on youtube all right well thanks for joining us once again richard yes. Always well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's always lovely. Um, and uh, until uh, next time, enjoy watching the mini adventures of the Doctors, animated or not, in all of the time and space. This is BBC Television.